Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. I don't know, I'm assuming you, could, you might be able to pick my voice up, I don't know, but I'm just going to try it. Is it, uh, is it going? Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, without further ado then, welcome to the third and final fall meeting of uh, Controversies in Church History. Uh, a little free course we're offering here at Our Lady of Hope, Our Lady of Sorrows. If you don't know, there's another community here called Our Lady of Hope. Long story, I'm a part of that one, but we're here at Our Lady of, uh, Our Lady of Sorrows. And so uh, tonight's lectures and uh, discussion will be on the Inquisition. And um, just a reminder uh, to all of you, if you have, um, you should, uh, if you haven't been there already, uh, we have a Facebook page for the course. You can go look. We have a schedule for the courses, what they're going to be on uh, for them in the uh, in the spring, once a month, uh, I think it's starting in January and going through April, um, as well as information there. I'm probably at some point going to be asking, like, I do a poll or whatever on the page about topics people would like to know about for next year. Uh, I don't like to do more than four, but anything anyone wants to know about their plan for next year. So for that. Also, I'm going to make available, if you, have, if you missed the first two lectures, um, we tried to record the first one, didn't work out. Um, but I did post my lecture outlines, uh, lecture notes, such as they are, for the first lecture, and the video. We have a video for the second one. We have, we have all that stuff on the uh, on the Facebook page. You should have access to it somewhere or the other. It's up there. Somebody might have to look around for it in some of the posts, but it is all there. And uh, we're recording this. I'm going to make this available as well. All that material will be available free to everybody who wants it uh, when we're done. So, without further ado, uh, we're going to talk about the Inquisition and uh, talk about it uh, and separate um, in broad outlines historical facts from the myths that have grown up about it. There are a lot of legends and mythologies about uh, the uh, Inquisition. And so, I want to start with, this thing will actually play, I don't know if it will. Yeah, it probably will, unfortunately. I anticipated this. Um, this is why you shouldn't try to use the internet for anything, but... Uh, it is hooked up. I do have. Uh, may take a moment. I'm going to play, if I can, a film clip. Has anybody ever seen the, uh, ever seen the movie uh, History of the World Part One? Okay, clip I'm probably talking about. Then, uh, if we can get there, I don't know if it's going to get there. I may have to skip over it. Uh, I wanted to show you the. There's a dance number. If you haven't seen this, uh, in which Mel Brooks pokes fun at the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition uh, in particular. It's kind of fun. I wanted to start with something fun because it's a sort of dark topic. Um, if technology will allow us to get to it, we can't, we'll just play it. It takes a few minutes, but um, it's the subject of a lot of popular culture, literature, art uh, for the past several centuries. Um, it's a target, the Inquisition. It's a term of derision. People use that as a, you know, when they refer to someone being tyrannical and awful, they'll say, well, this is an Inquisition, or, you know, um, this is, oh, we are going to have this. Uh, have this, I think. Uh, I think it's up there. Uh, I mention this because this is a good way of getting us into it to understand this, I think, because you know things you mock or the things you know that you sort of denigrate, I think are a good way to understand a way in this mythology if this thing will come up. Uh, I don't know, let's see. Uh, nope, not yet. Let me give it a second or two. Um, technology's not too good here. Uh, we're about to play a film clip that we came in late. Uh, from Mel Brooks, if uh, if it will uh, if we'll get up there. Um, that was going to be my shtick, or part of my shtick, as the introduction to this. Oh, it is up there. 
So yeah, this will take this will take a few minutes, but uh, it's worth listening to. It's actually kind of a catchy tune. If we can hear the, <coughs> if it'll actually go. Let's begin the imposition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. We're gonna teach them all the right. We're gonna help them see the light and make an offer that they can't refuse. Jews just can't Your skull cap and your skull. Oh, here we go, Walt. The Inquisition. What a show. The Inquisition. Here we go. We know you're wishing that we go away. But the Inquisition's here, but it's here to stay. Oh, boy. The Inquisition. What a job. The Inquisition. Oh, it's hard. There's bad words in here. I was sitting in a temple. I was minding my own business. I was listening to a
important to show you that is that's, well, it's silly, but you get a sense of, one of the things you got out of there is you hear him talking about, okay, we're gonna make the Jews convert, we're gonna turn all that other stuff. You're gonna see, as I'll explain in a moment, all the confusions, or all of them, a lot of the confusions about what the Inquisition was uh, and what it did in this, this silly little clip from a really funny movie. Um, and uh, I'm gonna start by doing something uh, I usually do with my, um, my kids when I teach Western Civ, which is I ask them, okay, how many people did the Inquisition put to death? Like you've probably seen, you got a section that all those torture devices, burning, death, all that stuff. Uh, so I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you sort of give you a little quiz to start start this. Uh, so I give you choices up there. So which one's accurate? How many people did the Inquisition put to death? Sixty-five thousand, ten million, nineteen thousand, three hundred thousand, four million. And everybody has to give me an answer. <laughs> it's interactive here. It's interactive. Just shout it out, you don't have to be shy. 19,000. 19,000. 19,000. And then 19,000. 65. 65, 19. There's an auction here. 65. 19. 19. 19. 19. 19. 19. Uh, I hate to do this to you, this is a trick question. The answer is zero. Uh, the Inquisition, however way, whatever form, never actually put anyone to death. And I'll explain, by the way, why I threw that out there because I've heard all, if you, again, you get the fever response of the internet, you can find whatever your numbers you like. But I know reputable historians, serious people who will throw out numbers in the millions as to people who were killed by the Inquisition. They are, by the way, associated with the deaths of people um, identified as heretics, but they didn't put them to death themselves. I need to explain that distinction in a moment. But I like to do that to get people thinking, right? Okay. Because in your mind, you think, well, it must be all this number of people, and, you know. Uh, people got executed for all sorts of things prior to the modern era, the uh, sort of the Azure thing. We executed people who were uh, deviants in society. Oops, let me go back. Uh, I wanted to give you, by comparison, um, numbers of modern atrocities. And these first three in particular, these are estimates, by the way, and I'll come back and repeat this. <clears throat> A lot of times we don't have great evidence for big events like this. And so, Almost all the time, these numbers are estimates, but I'll start with the Reign of Terror. Most of you have probably heard of this. This is the effort during the French Revolution at the height of its more violent phase to purge the revolution, the country of anti-revolutionary elements, nobility, churchmen, stuff like this. In a period of about 13 months, somewhere between 14 and 17,000 people were executed. During uh, Joseph Stalin's so-called Great Purge, which again, for similar reasons in the 1930s, 1936, 1938, in, um, I wish this thing was not here, uh, in uh, the Soviet Union, wanting to get rid of um, uh, people who were, again, opposed to the, the, the Communist Party, the state, anybody opposed to him, uh, purged, sent to camps, and had executed or just worked them to death in camps. Again, numbers are not really uh, not really precise, but somewhere in the order of six to 700,000. That's the number I got from the research on this over a two year span. And uh, the Cultural Revolution in China from 1966 to 1976, where again, you had Communist Party and the leadership of Chairman Mao wanting to uh, purge uh, Chinese society of capitalist elements, opponents of the revolution. Again, either executed outright, sick mobbed on, sent to work camps, death camps. Again, somewhere between half a million to two million people in 10 years' time. Uh, and by the way, these were all marked by, the reason I put these together, they're all marked by show trials. 
uh, the kind of things you're kind of associating in your mind with uh, the uh, Inquisition, which you put on trial, heresy, those sorts of things. To balloon it out a little better, uh, to add in military massacres or other types of forced marches, uh, a more points of comparison. The Trail of Tears uh, from 1830, when uh, the Cherokee Indians are forced to move from the East Coast to the center of the country, uh, about 2,000 to 6,000 people uh, perished on that trip uh, to the middle of the country. The Vendée, which most of you, I'm sure, don't know what the Vendée is, actually. The Vendée War is actually um, you know, like a counter-revolutionary um, civil war, basically, in which Catholic peasants, basically, they were upset about the French Revolutionary government doing the church in 1794, <coughs> organized themselves into an army and began defeating revolutionary armies in the western, northwestern part of France. Um, so the French Revolutionary government sent several armies into that territory, wiped out the armies, um, burned whole villages of the ground with people in them, and then when they were done and captured the last of those armies, they began executing them on the spot, uh, guillotining them, and when they couldn't guillotine them fast enough to appease the government, the military leaders on the ground, they began tying them into sacks and throwing them in the river to drown them. Uh, again, numbers are kind of sketchy, somewhere between 100 and 300,000 people. And I won't go through all these in turn, but you have these modern massacres, the Armenian massacre, Armenian genocide, in the early 19th century. The Holodomor, I don't know what that is either. That was the enforced Ukrainian famine. Joseph Stalin in the 1930s was trying to force Ukrainian peasants onto collective farms, give up their own farms. They refused. He encircled the country of Ukraine with the Red Army, confiscated every last bit of grain or food from their houses, and waited for most of them to starve to death, which many of them did. Uh, and of course, lastly, the, the Holocaust, which, again, I should emphasize this, is something you should know about history in general. We don't know that's an accurate number. When people walked into the camps in 1945, they, they basically had to extrapolate because the Nazis really good at keeping records. They were even better at destroying them, which they had done, as they knew the Allies were closing in. Could be a lot more, we don't know. Um, and so the question becomes, this is the question I begin this, this lecture with, is um, I'll begin with that thing on the bottom there. Why is the Inquisition so much more this symbol of everything that's tyrannical, awful, than these other events? Why does it have uh, this power and imagination that, you know, why does nobody say, well, you know, this is like, this is like Stalin's show trials. Nobody says that. Um, and that's one thing, that's what we're going to try to answer for you today. Two things I want to keep in mind as we go through this, two caveats. One is the problem of evidence, which I've already mentioned, and I'll mention over and over again. A lot of times our evidence is not good, and I'll, I'll come back to this, have several opportunities to come back to this in the course of the lecture. Uh, but also of, um, just viewing it through, and people have viewed this through, confessional lenses. They have uh, viewed this through partisan lenses for a long, long time. Uh, and so sometimes it's a matter of you know, viewing partial evidence uh, best way you can to get the best uh, sort of answers you can get out of it. Um, much of a lack of evidence, but again, lack of quality evidence kind of undermines what we can actually answer sometimes. The other thing is that understanding, historical understanding of the motives behind uh, the Inquisition in its very in various incarnations does not excuse actual injustices that were committed by the people who ran it. And there were, by the way. Uh, putting all those numbers up there wasn't meant to sort of excuse anything that went on, just to give you the difference in scale and difference in you know, the actual, I will say, the severity of what we think of as persecution, injustices that way. And so let's, uh, let's get started uh, then with that uh, question there. And um, First thing is we have to answer is, okay, what was the Inquisition? 
And um, the first thing to note is that um, heresy is always a problem for the church. Uh, heresy is defined as having the wrong belief. Her heresy is the Greek word means choice. Uh, meaning I, you made the wrong choice, you've chosen against the church's teaching, teaching basically. Uh, and in scripture, of course, there's not a lot of, um, not a lot that addresses this. A few times it is addressed basically when there's an erring brother or sister. Basically, you admonish them, you warn them, and then St. Paul and some of his letters mentions you sort of uh, detach yourself from them, basically. Or what might amount to a sort of expulsion from the community. This is more or less a sort of prefiguring of excommunication, where you abandon the church's beliefs, you get kicked out, basically. This will change in the early church by the time you get um, to the fourth century AD, when the church becomes, once it's given toleration by Constantine the Great, the Roman Emperor. Uh, it will become an imperial religion, and a very different principle emerge, partly because these Roman emperors from Constantine onwards act in the tradition of Roman uh, emperors who were supposed to safeguard the religion of the empire. By the end of the fourth century, that was Christianity. So they began passing laws, um, both against punishing you know, pagans, shutting down pagan you know, shrines, stuff like that, um, putting restrictions, legal restrictions on Jews, punishing Manichaeans, who were a sect that really nobody liked in the ancient world, uh, but also uh, against uh, heretics. And by the end of the 5th and 6th century, the principle has emerged um, and is associated, especially you can read it, you can find it on the internet, it's easy to Google, with thinkers like Augustine the Pippo, St. Augustine, who articulate the idea that you cannot force conversion. And this is something Christian church has been pretty, pretty uh, consistent about throughout its history. Uh, forced conversions are worthless. Conversion is a freedom, free act you make with the will. Uh, and therefore you can't punish it, you can't use coercion, you can't use physical uh, duress. On the other hand, punishing the, the quote-unquote the treacher, treacherous, and this key term will come back to it, people who apostatize, people who adopt publicly erroneous beliefs opposed to the church, um, can be physically coerced. The idea was, okay, we have free will, and we have freely, freely chosen the true church. We've adopted it, we've been baptized, we've been confirmed, all that stuff. But then we freely choose to abandon it. And so you can be forced to come back into it. Why? Because you gave your free assent to it. Uh, it's not like with someone who's grown up, for example, as a Jew all his life. He can't be forced because he didn't give his uh, free choice to this. And so from that fourth century onward, you have emperors, um, passing laws, some of them more strict than others, um, which punish heresy, and I should mention this, as a civil crime. Heresy is a civil crime. It is not something the church has any, as you're going to see in a moment, authority to punish. Uh, and these punishments like, can be severe. The punishment for this, um, when it's punished with death, is death by burning, which was, by the way, the same punishment that was reserved for witches in ancient Roman law. And if you're wondering, by the way, why the severity of that punishment? Uh, it's very simple. This is not something that's a crime an individual commits on his own, no repercussions. This is a crime against the entire community. Uh, as you're going to get into the Middle Ages, when Christianity becomes a de facto belief system of everybody, and it's not the only thing that holds society together, you don't have strong governments, you don't have a, an empire anymore. Um, heresy looks like you, uh, it's maybe more strong as a form of antisocial behavior. If you're willing to disobey the authorities about this, what aren't you willing to disobey them about? It literally is a form of treason. Uh, that's how they think of it, that's how they punish it in the uh, uh, in antiquity and the early Middle Ages. 
As you get into the early Middle Ages, however, Roman law falls into abeyance in many areas because of the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. Um, but, and that's the thing to mention about this, and I'll, uh, I, I should have mentioned already, the, um, the whole idea of an inquisitio, an inquisition, has been there since uh, Roman times. Since the time of the Roman Republic, an inquisition was basically a legal process by which you investigate a crime. That's all it meant. That's what more, and it had several different meanings, and specific meanings in law, and that's more or less what it meant. Even as that procedure kind of goes into abeyance, it kind of doesn't disappear, but again, you have kingdoms which are uh, founded by uh, Germanic peoples who don't have Roman law, or who got it later on, uh, and so they don't, uh, that term gets used, but mostly in the context of the church, and almost only with regard to the clergy for several hundred years after this. In other words, it's there, it's kind of a dormant principle, if you want to put it in those, in those terms. Um, what's going to happen is, uh, and, and by the way, uh, I should mention, when they did punish heresy, prior to the 12th century, when the Inquisition, as we understand, began to emerge, um, basically there were two ways you could basically punish or try to deal with heresy. One, mobs, if they found someone they didn't like and declared them to be a heretic, they just go grab them and burn them, which we have records of things actually happening in, in medieval Europe. The other way was you could uh, accuse someone before the court of a local nobleman. You have to understand, in the Middle Ages, um, before the rise of great kings, kingdoms in France and places like that, basically every petty nobleman had their own law courts, their own manorial law courts. And if you got accused of heresy, you could draw them, drag them before one of these courts. Uh, and he would be the one to try whether or not what you had said, what you had done, what you had been accused of was actual heresy. And as you can kind of imagine, most of these noblemen, just not very literate, if literate at all, didn't know much about theology, they were rather easily swayed. This led to things that might be considered unjust. Uh, and by the way, the church did consider them unjust, which is what leads me to my next point. As you're going to come to the Middle Ages, and what's going to happen is, uh, beginning in the uh, 11th, 10th centuries, 10th, 11th centuries, um, you're going to have uh, the study of Roman, Roman law be revived in medieval universities, uh, starting in Bologna, in Italy, and then moving on to other places across uh, Europe. Uh, they're going to take up, again, with a renewed enthusiasm, uh, Roman law text. And I can't emphasize this enough. Um, this is one of the major developments, intellectually speaking, in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, because what's happened is you have all these kingdoms, okay, you have, you know, whatever, German kingdoms here, you have the kingdoms of England, France, all this other stuff. You have no one single legal system that binds the Christian world together. What's going to happen is the church is going to use Roman law to create one, its own law, the canon law, the system of law we know as canon law for the church. Uh, and they're going to use it to create a systematic, um, um, a principled, systematic version of law that can be applied anywhere in Europe. Why is that a big deal? Well, because if you want from one local area, it may not be that far away from another, you might have totally different customs, totally different ways of living. Uh, disorder and chaos weren't sort of normal aspects of life in medieval Europe. Um, and so um, churchmen, of course, by the way, who were mostly the only literate people in all these places, it would come to be parts of government, parts, you know, advisors to kings in the Middle Ages. So this was important for them as a, uh, something to have. Uh, and so law becomes, and I should mention, by the way, that just the importance of this to the church in the Middle Ages, most of the pope, popes, the vast majority of them in the Middle Ages, are not actually theologians by training their canon lawyers. Uh, why? Because you need canon law to run the church, which, by the way, is the biggest single institution in Europe by far. Uh, it has more staff, more secretaries, for various you know, dignitaries like the Pope 
then any institution in Europe will until the 16th and 17th century when you have the beginning of the modern state um, in, uh, in that period. So you're talking about something uh, that's very widespread and gets into everything in the church's life. Uh, they begin to apply this legal system to almost everything. And this is kind of where you're gonna, the Inquisition is going to come from. Um, because for the first time, you're going to have, and again, this, this term, this legal process of an inquisition, I'll describe what this entails in a moment, is going to be applied to, um, to heresy, starting in the 12th century, particularly in Western France. There appear several major groups, the Cathars, the Albigensians, in uh, Western France, which um, the church begins to have to deal with. And a lot of this stuff occurs at a time when the church is. Um, trying to extricate itself from civil authority. It's trying to assert its authority over aspects of life it thinks it has you know, authority over. One of those things would be defining what heresy is. Uh, again, you're asking why we have this legal tribunal which will go through to heresy. Well, you didn't have that before. The, again, the only recourse you had was to, uh, you know, to escape a mob if you were accused of it, was going to these local noblemen, who again, weren't notoriously well-trained or could you know, be arbitrary, obviously, in a lot of things they did. And so what happens is they begin sending out these, and I'll come to this in a moment, begin using this process in the late 12th century. Um, and in the Middle Ages, there really is no single, this is the thing to, uh, thing to remember, there is no single institution called the Inquisition anywhere. Uh, it's only when you get to the early modern period, and this is gonna be for circumstances that come here in a moment, in certain countries there'll be an actual um, single institution called the Inquisition for very specific purposes. Uh, created the Spanish Inquisition in 1478, uh, the Portuguese in 1536, and then in Rome, the Roman Inquisition, which is, if you don't know, the ancestor, in fact, of the modern-day congregation for the doctrine of the faith. It was meant to, as we'll get to, safeguard, um, safeguard orthodoxy against Protestantism in the 16th century. Uh, 16th century. Uh, so you have this um, process for why, for the most part, there was no single pattern of how people would how uh, um, ecclesiastical authorities would investigate charges of heresy. Um, so this comes to the, uh, so I have to explain, of course, what it does, so we know what it is. It's a tribunal uh, run by an inquisitor. What's an inquisitor? Inquisitors are special judicial figures, usually appointed by the Pope, and sometimes other people, but most of the Pope, as we're gonna see, uh, whose role is to determine, uh, determine heresy and to get people to confess and repent of it. That is their main thing, is they can confess, repent, and reconcile them to the church. Um, and again, I, I should emphasize this, it's just a single sort of judge, basically. If you think of it as being sort of like, uh, in modern terms, a special prosecutor was appointed, it's an outside prosecutor, just come in and you know, uh, give his outside opinion on something, that's kind of what uh, inquisitors did. Uh, I mentioned the role of the papacy, and again, the papacy was in, playing an increasingly large role in a lot of aspects of Western life in the 12th century. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons, by the way, they wanted to interfere in this matter, would have been a civil matter before this, uh, was because they, was they were concerned, the papacy uh, folks were, uh, about abuse, of course, of the tribunal for heresy. And this is the thing you're gonna have to wrap your mind around, is that the Inquisition was actually established to be much more lenient in the civil courts. Uh, I'll explain in a moment the actual process. It was meant to give people every opportunity to recant so they could get out of the whole burning thing, uh, which is always a good thing, right? 
Um, but it also again has to do with this growth of the idea of the universality of the law. I get there's one standard everywhere for the church. Again, that was really important. It was not important, by the way, for King to be a rabbinic by any of this. Uh, the church, on the other hand, wanted there to be a procedure that was fair uh, for everybody as far as possible. And that's one of the reasons why this, um, this gets created. And so what actually happened in an inquisition? How did this work? So what happens is you're going to have an inquisitor sent out by the, appointed by the papacy. And by the way, early on uh, in the 12th century before, you get, before it becomes regularized, it doesn't become a regular feature of medieval life until the 1230s. Uh, Pope Gregory the Ninth is actually the one who sort of gathers up all the various uh, forms and sort of uh, regularizes them and gives them uh, papal direction. Um, basically, there'll be an investigation in which this inquisitor will go into a local area uh, and he'll call together the clergy and people in a, a convenient place. And then he'll preach a sermon in which he announces his credentials as a theologian who is appointed by all that stuff. Uh, and then he'll urge and call upon all the Orthodox Christians in the area to identify people who are heretics or those who are suspected of heresy in the vicinity. Uh, and then he'll announce a period of grace. I don't know how long the time was. I guess it varies from place to place. In which confessions will be accepted without any sort of consequences at this point. Um, and so you basically give them time, as it were, to sort of, hey, you've been accused of this, come and, come and see us. And, uh, and uh, get it over as quickly as possible, right? Uh, from there, they would take testimony uh, from witnesses, and one of the reasons, uh, you, as you'll see, the Inquisition got a bad reputation was, was that um, this testimony was given in secret, and they didn't reveal the names of the witnesses. They say they didn't reveal the names of people who were accusing others of heresy. And the reason for this apparently originally was to protect people who were making the accusation from retaliation. But it became a point of uh, contention later on, as we'll get to, uh, this uh, secret nature of this uh, tribunal. Uh, but the proceedings would be recorded in full. I mean, they said their names from when it went on. Uh, oftentimes, by the way, the accused were not permitted counsel. And the reason why was to make the procedure that much more quick so that you got to get it over with. Again, this would also in time become something people would criticize heavily. Uh, but on the other hand, these, uh, the accused were allowed to list anyone they thought were enemies they might have. Uh, and if any of those names matched up any of the witnesses that accused them, they would strike out their testimony and cancel them. So they did have some recourse uh, from uh, being accused of this. Now, as I mentioned before, the goal of these inquisitions, the whole goal of this tribunal, is to get a confession, uh, to get them to confess, to assign them a penance, to have them reconciled with the church. Um, one of the ways you got people to confess in uh, Roman law, and this goes back to Roman law, is torture. Uh, and every single legal body I can think of in medieval and early, uh, early modern Europe used torture uh, in its investigations. And by the way, when I say torture, you shouldn't get the idea that you know pulling out fingernails and stuff like this. There are actually fairly strict rules for how, how you're supposed to use this in these investigations. Uh, the goal wasn't to damage the body of the person you're um, the person you're um, investigating. The goal was to give them some incentive to tell the truth. And if that sounds awful, by the way. Think about this for a second. They had the assumption that if you didn't, you wouldn't. They had a much less, everybody here is like, we're all nice to each other. You assume that we're going to be honest. You assume you can trust your neighbors. Medieval had a much darker opinion of people. If they didn't have that, you'd probably, you'd probably lie. Which, uh, I think there's something to be said for that, by the way. <laughs> Not for the torture, but for the idea that 
people, of course, don't tell the truth all the time. Uh, and by the way, I mentioned strict, uh, strict rules. Um, most historians tend to think it wasn't used very much, the actual torture, um, as often people think, especially in the Middle Ages. When they did, they would use something, the most common form of torture they usually provided, something called the strapado, which, and by the way, they had people who were actually experts in doing those, I'll show you what I mean in a second. What they would do is they would throw a rope over a pulley, the ceiling, and then tie your hands behind your back and then lift you from the ceiling. And what they would do is, uh, they'd ask you questions, they didn't buy it, they would drop you the rope down a little bit, and that would, of course, jerk up your arms like that, extraordinarily painful. But they couldn't drop it only so far. They actually had this down to a science. Trust me, in places like Renaissance Italy, they were experts in torture. Uh, but in the Middle Ages, again, this actually a fairly rare occurrence when we talk about uh, torture in that way. And then finally, punishments. And punishments, if you were candid, basically amounted to forms of penance. You would go on a pilgrimage, you were supposed to go uh, fast for a certain period, uh, practice some sort of particular devotion to a particular saint, or wear a yellow cross on your garments for a specified, specified period as a matter of penance. And that's mostly it. Those are almost all the sentences that an actual, this is why I said that Inquisition never burned anybody. This is why. That's the only punishment they could actually hand out. Like, technically speaking, this is a matter of civil law. You could have your goods confiscated if you were you know, accused of being a heretic. Again, that's civil law. They would do that. The only time, of course, you would be burned is if you refuse to recant. If you refuse, you would then be relaxed. That's the Latin term they used. You would be sent to the civil arm of the law. And then they would apply the sentence to you, which what's happening in the higher part of the Middle Ages when this begins, by the way, is that punishments for, um, for heresy were increasingly severe. And again, by the high Middle Ages, it would be something like burning to death, uh, which was the same punishment, by the way, for treason. So um, that's why, of course, uh, I can get away with saying, oh yeah, the church didn't actually burn anybody. They would hand over, of course, people who would not recant to their secular arm of the state. So how, did, how many did they actually kill? We do have something like numbers for this, and I need to go through each of these in turn. And these are estimates, by the way. Um, we really don't have, I mean, the inquisitors kept pretty good records, but we don't have all of them in a lot of different places. Uh, and there were basically, well, we're going to talk about the medieval position, Inquisition last because it's the most tenuous in terms of our knowledge. The Spanish Inquisition lasts for over 300 years. And the best estimates any of them come up with is that they spent between three and 5,000 people to the state being executed in over 300 years. Most of them, by the way, about 2,000 of them before 1530. Uh, and the reason why, by the way, and this is one of the things um, that we find the story of Henry Common, uh, who is of all things, the rarest of things, a Spanish Protestant, uh, or a fine book uh, called the, uh, the Inquisition, or, uh, Spanish Inquisition of Revision. Um, basically, the reason for this is that the state, the Spanish monarchy was behind um, the sort of abuses, most of the abuses of the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, if you remember, the Sp uh, Spanish monarchy unites, you know, Castile and Aragon, 1492. Um, and I forgot to mention this in all this, the Inquisition had no jurisdiction over Jews. That's why uh, Mel Brooks' uh, nice, um, uh, nice dance on the is great. It, it's inaccurate. Um, they could not actually get at, it had no jurisdiction over non-baptized persons. Who they were targeting in Spain were uh, Moranos, Conversos is another name given to them, 
uh, people who had been uh, Jews and converted to Christianity, who were suspected of still, still practicing Judaism. Again, that principle of, okay, you can force people who've been baptized to their faith is being used. And almost certainly, by the way, by the Spanish government, more for political reasons. By political reasons, I mean um, they were worried, quite frankly, about the fifth columns. They had just conquered former uh, Islamic territory where Jews had been fairly prominent. And so there was some sort of, you know, that, probably anti-Semitism. Uh, probably also, this is a procedure as you can kind of imagine, it's probably fairly easy to manipulate in some ways. This is one of the things about the Inquisition, it doesn't need to be uh, washed over. I'm sure people use that as a way of settling scores people they didn't like. Um, we know people do this, but those are the numbers there. For the Portuguese Inquisition, which was only instituted in the 1530s, the king of Portugal asked us for this, the Inquisitors to be sent there. Over less than a three-year period, about, uh, about 1,200. Again, uh, uh, estimates. The Roman Inquisition handed over the civil arm of the state, about 1,250. And then finally, I'm putting up there the medieval Inquisition. Nobody really knows about the medieval Inquisition. Our records are much, much worse for those. Um, the uh, esteemed historian, Italian historian, Carlo Ginsburg, basically thinks you can't know any of this stuff. He thinks the evidence is so sparse, we'll never know how many. He thinks it's a little too radical. Um, the best estimate I was able to find out was that maybe three people a year in the Middle Ages. I'm defining those dates from 1184 to 1542. It's arbitrary. I just picked it out because that's when the Roman Inquisition uh, finally begins. Um, maybe three people a year were handed over to the civil law to be executed in the Middle Ages at its height. Uh, wasn't that many, to be honest. Um, and so maybe you add another thousand or so. So you have about 8,500 in total people who were handed over to the secular arm of the state to be executed. Uh, and again, the point is not to, especially in cases where it's obvious abuse, where they're not really trying. And again, this is, we'll get to this, back to this in a second, this is one of the things, of course, is different from the modern society and medieval society is, um, we don't actually burn people for heresy, which is a great thing. Uh, on the other hand, it deeply matters to people um, whether or not you had the right belief. That's going to be the big difference I want to come back to, but Again, notice the number there, the number for those modern atrocities. Uh, and again, why is the one sort of 24-7, you know, projected into people's minds, and why the other's forgotten, right? One other controversy I want to talk about, because this relates to the Inquisition before we wrap things up. There was a book published about 30 years ago now, uh, actually exactly 30 years ago now, by the name uh, R.I. Moore, uh, which was called The Formation of a Persecuting Society. And uh, his idea was that in the 11th and 12th centuries, the medieval church and you know, uh, medieval society uh, developed techniques of social control uh, and um, for persecuting dissenters and deviants, whatever, stuff like this, uh, due to the growth of a, of a literate class among the clergy. And that this left a legacy of persecution uh, to the modern age. In other words, two things. One, he wants to take, and by the way, he's thinking of the Inquisition primarily. He's extending this to other areas of uh, medieval life. Um, that it basically creates a society whose, you know, it, which is basically formed to persecute minorities. That's to put that in modern terminology. Um, there were some criticisms, mostly, by the way, it was well-received on <laughs> this book by academics. Um, partly, by the way, because they hate the Catholic Church. Um, but one of the criticisms was it tended to lump 
very different groups together. Uh, R.I. Moore's uh, his specialty, his specialization as a historian was um, medieval heresy. He's very good on that. But he loved things like persecution of Jews, um, the treatment of lepers, the treatment of homosexuals in the Middle Ages, and sort of got from that this amalgam of, oh, it must all be this, you know, this whole society devoted to persecuting people. And in the reviews I read of the book, virtually nobody came out and said they bought that thesis whole, whole, whole hog, basically. Uh, mainly because I don't think beyond the heresy that actually you can sustain it. Um, and I say that because there were other criticisms. There was a book published about five years after that, maybe six or seven years after that, called uh, Beyond the Persecuted Society, which tried to identify um, theories and arguments for toleration, religious toleration, before the Enlightenment, <coughs> Middle Ages, early modern period. Um, my and other part is, of course, ignored evidence <coughs> to the contrary in terms of that we might be uh, bad to present a thesis. Um, one of the things I would criticize about this, and just to give you an idea why I don't buy it too much, um, one of the things that leads into this is that, especially, uh, especially the part about blaming the church for creating a persecuting society, which then is the, you know, the source of all the modern persecutions, it's pretty self-serving. Um, the idea that, you know, uh, yeah, we know it's bad stuff, but it, you know, again, 800 years ago, it, it, I, I don't buy it myself. I think it's too neat and passes off responsibility uh, for modern crimes on the medieval and underlying people that don't deserve that. Um, but there's also other things that go into this, and as you know, Henry Thomas mentioned with the Spanish Inquisition, there's a much bigger drive there other than persecuting dissent. Uh, you have, especially when it becomes the Inquisition in Spain, it's related to the state building in a lot of ways. Uh, the effort to crush dissent is a matter of the, the modern state trying to assert autonomy from the church in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's as big a part of this story as anything else. Um, and again, I mentioned, I can bring it back, the, the fact that Spain, which is one of the more powerful, larger states in the early modern period, does this. And by the way, the Inquisition in, Sp in Spanish lands extends well beyond Spain itself, into the Netherlands, into um, um, the New World, Mexico. Uh, and there are, by the way, horrible abuses that are associated with this, where you do have you know, uh, and again, it's always uh, former conversos or former converso families who are being persecuted, hunted down, basically, by the Inquisition. They're there. You can find out about them. They're, they're easy to find. Um, but for the most part, this does seem more like a matter of state than it does like a matter of uh, religion. And I think it also has to go back to, again, something we have to keep in mind when we think about the medieval period, the urban modern period. Um, one of the things they believed is that truth is more important than individual freedom. So to be taken before a tribunal where you don't have counsel for defense is not as big a deal as getting this thing wrong about God. Because truth is more important than your individual. Uh, what's more important than that? Right? Uh, it mattered intensely to the medieval church that uh, they get this right. Truth is more important than that. That's why they had these procedures. That's what they tried to, by the way, and again, hard to wrap your mind around it, they were trying to actually uh, mitigate the severity of civil law with something like an inquisitor, inquisitorial tribunal. Um, whereas in our modern way of thinking, we think exactly the opposite. Uh, we don't want truth to cost that much. Ours is a pluralist vision. We don't want to put, of course, the individual uh, ahead of that. Um, of course, part of the you know, problem that is, of course, you put truth away at the same time because they're relativistic very easily. Um, and I'm again, 
I have no, by the way, no stomach for burning people, the whole idea. I've read descriptions that begin leaving me horrified. But I think there is something actually more admirable, at least in that impulse, in the top level of the position, why they did what they did. Um, and uh, we do have to understand that, again, if we're not going to excuse anything, which we should not, uh, from that era. Well, you did, of course, um, uh, have a lot of injustice because of it. So, okay, so it was this legal process. It didn't kill that many people. It was sort of normal at the time. Okay, where does this myth come from that it is the fount of all evil? It is the sort of symbol of all tyranny, yada, yada, yada. Where does it come from? It comes from several sources. The first, uh, beginning in the 16th and 17th centuries, and most, the sort, yeah, first source of this is the, our Protestant Reformation polemics against uh, Catholicism. Especially, and they, they latched on to the Inquisition, to people like Luther and later on other people as well, uh, partly because of its ecclesiastical nature. Um, a lot of the reformers were former priests themselves who left the priesthood. Um, but there was a real strong streak of anti-clericalism running through Western Europe in that time frame. A lot of people just really hated priests and hated the idea of them having power over them. So this is one reason why it stuck so well. The other reason is that in the 16th and 17th centuries, the Spanish and the Roman Inquisition, whatever you think about their, um, the punishments they um, allowed to happen to the state, uh, were successful in keeping Protestant ideas out of Italy and Spain for the most part. There's a reason why they're still Catholic. And it's not because, again, this is where, and again, this also goes back to mention two visions of society. Um, we don't believe in coercion for, for the most part. Again, they did. I think you can say, in a sense, coercion worked if you put it in those terms, but um, they were afraid of it for that reason. And plus, of course, and this is the other part of this we have to keep in mind, Spain in the 16th and 17th, uh, early 17th centuries is the most powerful country in Europe. So countries like England, which are not very powerful, uh, the Netherlands, the Dutch, they break away from the Spanish, actually, uh, rebel against them, establish their independence. They're going to terrify them, be taken over by them, invaded by them. So this uh, colors their uh, polemics. Uh, and especially in the English-speaking world, we'll get to the Black Legend in a second, we all come out of that tradition, it becomes part of the national myth in England, right? We're the good, godly Protestant nation that's surrounded by all these wicked papists. Spain, and then France later on, once Spain declines, are the two bugbears of their national life. And that plays into that as well. One other thing, of course, that plays into this is uh, Protestants, from the very beginning, beginning with Martin Luther, actually, um, had to deal with the problem of, okay, where was the church if... You know, the church basically banned Sola Scriptura, all this other stuff, for a thousand years. Okay, where was the church? So people like Martin Luther, and later on this is taken up by virtually every major Protestant thinker, they argued that the church ceased to be visible at some point, somewhere, around, somewhere or other, whenever it became the religion of the Roman Empire, something like that. Uh, the true church was invisible in the Middle Ages. And don't you know it? You know how we uh, found out what, where it was? It was being persecuted by the false ones. And so what you have Luther and all these people doing is identifying themselves as victims of the Inquisition. Say, see, the, the true church got persecuted by the false ones. Uh, and so you had them identifying, you know, with these earlier heretics, as well as identifying uh, inquisitional tribunals of their day, the Spanish, the Roman, uh, with the evil ones, which were very different in a lot of ways. Uh, which, of course, Catholic polemicists in turn said, yes, you're right, your, your ancestors were a bunch of heretics. Uh, so they both conflate these ideas together and perpetuate this myth. Uh, another myth that is uh, sort of um, alive with this is the, the, uh, the so-called black legend. 
you're not familiar with what this is. Say a largely Anglophone um, idea that originates in Protestant polemics in 16th century, 17th century England, uh, which depicts especially uh, Spanish treatment of Native Americans in the New World as cruel, excessively cruel and brutal, based on religious uh, prejudice and persecution. The presence of the Inquisition in Mexico, you know, played into this, all into this sorts of things. Um, and these are, for the most part, by the way, nationalistic type of propaganda. They're not for the I mean, they do target the Catholic Church and this type of propaganda, but for the most part, they're not. Uh, I don't care about my update. For the most part, they are um, um, they are targeting Spain as a country, again because of the political dynamics. Um, Protestant countries like Spain, like uh, England and Scotland, and the Netherlands are small states surrounded by large Catholic powers, um, which is perpetuated in you know textbooks in England in the 19th century emphasize this stuff, and until the 20th century emphasized it. In America, they emphasize this. Um, uh, and again, they tended to uh, idealize the Inquisition to the extent that they identified it with the church itself. Wherever the, wherever the church was, the Inquisition was, and vice versa. And so slowly over time, the idea of the Inquisition goes from being this specific historical thing to becoming a sort of, if you like, a model for every form of persecution. Uh, and by the way, leading to a white legend, this is, again, 19th century uh, Spanish nationalist historians sort of respond in kind eventually. They try to whitewash everything about um, the, um, the Spanish Inquisition, which uh, I should stress this, by the way, when I say the monarchy was responsible for the excesses of the Spanish Inquisition, it's still a Catholic monarchy. Again, it's not senior churchmen doing this, but they're still Catholic, so it's a Catholic state. Uh, but at least sometimes what is called a white legend, which is, again, an overreaction to um, this uh, blackening of the Spanish, uh, Spanish character. So by the 18th century, by the time the 18th century rolls around, you have Enlightenment uh, thinkers uh, taking up this strand of thinking. People like Pierre Bayle, almost all of them French, uh, there are others, uh, Montesquieu, Voltaire, uh, who sort of turn uh, the Inquisition into this, again, exemplar of everything that's anti-modern, everything that's against. And by the way, one of the things the Inquisition, Inquisition did, I'm not gonna talk about too much here, um, they did uh, censor books. So of course you're getting the Enlightenment. This is of course very against censorship. This also becomes part of this mythos. It is this, uh, and this is one of the contributions of these Enlightenment thinkers. Or Inquisition doesn't just burn bodies. It also deadens the intellectual life of countries. By the time you get to the late 19th, early 18th, early 19th century, you have people like Voltaire and other thinkers uh, crediting Spain's decline. But it's in decline as a major power for about a century before that, blaming it on the Inquisition. The idea being well suppressed all these modern ideas, led to this economic uh, impoverishment, and that's why things are the way they are there. And by the way, there's still nobody, there's an academic debate about this, whether that's actually true or not. There's no consensus, whatever. Um, there are people that say yes, no. It's one of those things that's very hard to prove. But it was a very good thing if you wanted to crap on the Catholic Church, basically, which Voltaire and most of these people wanted to do in the 19, uh, 18th and 19th century. Um, and so people built on this, uh, this idea of uh, the Inquisition as this uh, anti-modernist force. And one of the things that happens is that uh, as you get to the um, period of the Napoleonic Wars, when Napoleon takes over, tries to take over places like Spain, he installed the Bourbon monarchy in Spain. Um, this injects, by the way, um, you know, uh, Enlightenment ideals into Spain. There is, by the way, a Spanish Enlightenment, in spite of all that 
uh, of the intellectual decline that supposedly happened. Um, I mention that because uh, he installed the Bourbon, a French puppet on the Spanish throne. He eventually gets kicked out by the Allied forces of the British. Uh, I mention that because while he was there, one of the um, a Sp a Spaniards who was um, loyal to the Bourbon monarchy wrote a history of Spain, which emphasized the horrors of the Inquisition. Uh, and by the way, he went when that uh, French king was kicked out into exile with them. And because he had access to records and everything, his, his, his account was very influential, especially on English-speaking historians in the 19th century, which he's one of these people who inflated the numbers, by the way, people who were killed. Those big numbers, that's where that influence eventually uh, is traced back to. And I mentioned him because um, I call them liberales. That's the, that's the biggest term, liberal from, by the way. Um, it's from Spanish history. Because the liberales, people who want to get rid of the church as a public life in Spain. They're the Enlightenment skeptics who oppose the church there. So you have this feeding into this image in the 19th century. And then finally, I don't have uh, too much time uh, to go over this. I don't, so I don't have much material to give you, but you have tons of art and literature to make use of this motif. If you don't know, um, if you can see behind all the writing on here, the background to my slides is taken from a uh, painting by Francisco Goya, who's a Spanish painter, late 19th century, uh, which is depicting people being brought before the Inquisition in Spain. And there, you can identify people being brought there that have these con uh, conical hats put on their, on their heads to identify them as heretics. Uh, and again, this is the sort of mythology that gets projected by, again, Spanish uh, painters here. And by the way, Goya never actually left the Catholic Church. Uh, in fact, when he died, he actually requested he would be buried in a Franciscan habit. So again, a lot of this is people reading back things that he was critical. He wasn't necessarily a philosopher in the same sense that Voltaire was. Um, but it projects this image. Now, there was a film made about 15 years ago by, um, his name escapes me, the guy that did, um, um, the Eastern European director, big name, uh, Milos Forman, that's the guy, called Goya's Ghosts, which, again, sort of tapped into this, you know, anti-clerical vision of Goya, which there's truth to it, he did criticize the church. Not quite that simple. But most famous, probably, well, maybe, um, Edgar Allan Poe's short, short story, The Pit and the Pendulum. This is supposed to be taken. Ever read that story, The Pit and the Pendulum? One person, nobody, nobody, read, nobody reads that anymore. Two people. Like, this is, you know, you're so deprived. You don't, you don't get all this good anti Catholic literature in your veins. Your it's terrible. No, um, but it was a short story that Poe wrote about this. It's basically a psychological thriller where the guy's, you know, he's being, you know, uh, he's about to be killed by the Inquisition. Long story, it's a, it's a mythological, nice story, but it's a story. Uh, the most famous goes back to the novel by Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist. Uh, in his novel, uh, Brothers Karamazov, there's a little section called The Legend of the Grand Inquisitor, <coughs> excuse me, in which he depicts, uh, you know, this scene from the Inquisition in which the Grand Inquisitor, uh, after an audit of Faye, uh, you know, their heretics being burnt, uh, Jesus comes down to earth and heals this little girl and raises her up from the dead. Everybody falls down, follows her. Um, they're all in awe of Jesus. This is like this, by the way, especially in the context, not of the story, but in the story within the story the guy is telling. Um, he heals this girl, and they all fall down on his feet, and then immediately the Grand Inquisitor arrests him, and he takes him to prison. And in prison, he gives him this long harangue about, you have to read it, it's really amazing. Uh, my point is this vision of the Grand Inquisitor, which it's a marvelous piece of literature, I, I teach that when I used to in my OCC courses, um, is drawn from these 
several, uh, by the way, Dostoevsky was a Russian Orthodox polemicist. Um, he was anti-Western, a lot of his views. He's getting these, these, um, these images of the Inquisition from prejudiced sources. One of the sources, by the way, are these 19th century historians influenced by um, um, historians that came out of, again, the early 19th century, the liberalized historians. So he's getting very, very prejudiced views of what the Inquisition's like. So again, all this stuff feeds into uh, uh, you know, popular culture as well. You've got the Mel Brooks thing at the beginning. That's, that's the fun part of it, actually. Uh, but it feeds into the, some of the best art that's ever been created, basically. Uh, and so this becomes, this is the reason why, if you person, you know all this stuff. It just becomes a sort of moral tick, if you like. That if you're modern, this is the anti-modern thing, and you can dump on it without any sort of, you know, fear of repercussion or reprisal. Uh, there's no microaggressions for that. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, fear of, you know, not speaking your mind about that. And so finally, I come to the takeaways about all this. Okay, so you have this, you know, you have this legal tribunal, which gets used for the most part. I, I would stress this in the Middle Ages. It's a lot more forgiving of a, a legal body in many ways than most uh, secular law courts are. To give you an example, by the way, uh, there was a witch burning craze in early modern Europe from the late 15th to about the early 17th century. Uh, I think this was a fairly high number. I think about 150,000 uh, women were actually like executed for being witches. Uh, almost none of them took place in Spain or Italy. And the reason was these are all done in secular law courts. And the reason why is there were, by the way, cases of witchcraft, a uh, fair number brought before the Inquisition, they almost all got off. The reason why is, is the Inquisition had higher standards of evidence, uh, more stringent standards for evidence than in secular law courts. So they were less subject to that hysteria. So again, you have this, again, it sounds like this awful thing where you know, we're investigating heresy, but uh, it was actually a, a great improvement in many ways in terms of the legal process going forward. But a few things, just to leave with you, take away as an apologetic. The first thing is, the Inquisition was merely a legal process. That's it. That's all it ever was. Uh, he had a lot of power to, to essentially the magistrate, essentially. Uh, you could blame it for that. There were safeguards, by the way. Uh, if you're wondering, by the way, okay, that's the case. How did the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition get out of hand? Um, by the 1470s, the Inquisition was really under the control of the papacy. However, he could give a dispensation, uh, which uh, was requested, he did. That is to say, he could give a dispensation from papal oversight to someone who wanted that for, for the tribunal. King uh, Ferdinand of, uh, um, and Isabella asked for this when he sent them. And by the way, the, the Grand Inquisitor, the first High Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition was Tomas de Pesamada, who also has a very good reputation, uh, uh, historically speaking. Uh, and so he gave his blessing so that it would be have no, no oversight, but just be a sort of, you know, his one thing themselves. Uh, I can't remember the, net, the, the actual number. This is Pope Sixtus who did this. This is the same Pope, by the way, who built the Sistine Chapel. Uh, almost immediately when he did this, he gave his dispensation from the papal oversight. He started getting letters from the Moranos communities in Spain complaining about the treatment by the Inquisition. Uh, and he wrote to the King of Spain, he wrote to Ferdinand, complaining, why, why are you doing this to these communities? They, he took it seriously, by the way. But he had relinquished any sort of legal authority over the tribunals. And to make a long story short, Ferdinand told him he had stopped. Uh, and the Pope regretted having done that after that point. But again, it's not as if he can you know, force him to do anything. The Pope 
has lots of money at that point. He doesn't have an army, and he has no way at that point to actually enforce any of you otherwise. But it was basically a legal process, which like any of them can be abused. And it was. Uh, it was something that uh, I don't think I, 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 mean, I need to say this actually. It's, it's wrong to burn people to death for heresy. <laughs> Um, I say this because it's cruel, but also because they can't repent of their death. Uh, I then, by the way, that, that doesn't point to a larger problem. I've been a teacher for over 10 years now. I've learned this the hard way. I, I hate punishing my students for anything. It's not in my nature. You know what I've learned? If you don't punish them, they'll never do what you think is right. Um, people respond. Everybody responds to some sort of pressure like that. Um, and uh, this is why this process like this, it, it is abused, and it takes vigilance, moral vigilance, to make sure it's not. This, however, does not make the church the fountain of all evil. <laughs> uh, if somebody says to you, hey, about the Inquisition, I'm like, yeah, the Inquisition did some bad things, but let me tell you about so-and-so, first of all, then you can explain to them, you know, uh, it was a legal process that really got abused. We have abuse uh, death penalty in this country. So people get executed, or have been executed in the past, who are innocent. So it does happen. Thirdly, genuine abuses, these genuine abuses, have been turned into a scapegoat, I think. This is my opinion. Uh, for modern crimes. Uh, it allows people who, you know, they want to see the modern world is always progressing toward greater good. So you can ignore the Holocaust. You can ignore the two world wars. You can ignore uh, the Stalinist purges. And by the way, he killed a lot more people than 600,000 of his own people. Uh, you can ignore the outrages of Chairman Mao and the communists. You can ignore the massacres. Uh, it, I, I, again, the point I wanted to make was, again, not to excuse the Inquisition, um, but just to show the scale of what we do is so different. And in so many ways, so much, so much worse in, that, in those terms. Um, this isn't, again, to adopt a relativistic standard, but it's not to treat the two as equivalent. I know people, again, you read this in, you know, again, Internet blog posts aren't the best way to measure this, but you hear people seriously conflating the Inquisition with the Nazis and the Holocaust. It's just, you can't, there's no, you can't reason with a person who's going to say that. There's just, they're, they're different things. Um, yes, they're both injustices. Actually, only part of the Inquisition was that the abuses were injustices. The Holocaust as a whole, branch is unjust. Uh, but I think it becomes a scapegoat. People, it's a way you don't have to talk about all the bad things that go on and go on today. Um, all sorts of atrocities being committed right now in this country by our government all the time. So the idea we're sort of separate from that, I find, I find deeply, um, deeply uh, unbelievable. Uh, and finally, as a Catholic, you should neither excuse the Inquisition's excesses nor feel the need to join in the scapegoating. Um, you know, knowledge is a good thing because it allows you to have a more detached view of this. Um, and uh, I think that's the black best thing I can give you is don't engage it with anything, by the way. Understand, you know, I give it its proper place. Uh, don't escape anyone or any, scapegoat anyone or anything. You don't need a scapegoat to sacrifice to make your life better. You already have the sacrifice of Christ. So, um, well, that and my last, my last bit of advice is, as always, history is complicated. Uh, which I say every time we have this. So that is it, by the way, for our for the lecture. Any questions uh, about uh, the presentation or things about the Inquisition you might not have gotten to the lecture you want to ask about?
Yes, uh, what's your name, sir? Michael. Michael, over there. Um, one, of the, one of the things I've heard, you know, you mentioned that King Ferdinand had kind of gotten into it with Pope Sixtus. Mm -hmm. One of the things I heard was that um, the, the monarchy and the, the folks who were driving force in this election position were actually excommunicated. Do you know if there's any? No, they never excommunicated any of them, no. They were, they were, on the whole, good Catholics. Again, that's the thing I want to stress here. They were. They were good Catholics. Again, you can commit horrible crimes if you are otherwise. This is, it's hard for us to deal with because it's like, you know, you may love your father, but you may do something awful. It's hard for us to reconcile. But uh, no, they were Catholics in good standing their whole lives. Never excommunicated. They did. And again, uh, Pope sometimes excommunicated people, communicated rulers for less than ideal reasons. But never did it to Ferdinand and Castile. Uh, Ferdinand and uh, Isabella. Any questions? Thank you. Well, if we're finished, that's that's it. Thank you guys for coming. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Well, how we can talk about it later. Uh, yeah, look for um, the schedule for next uh, next for, for the spring. Uh, I'm going to try, and uh, again, we have this. This is we've had a pretty good turnout in the first uh, three classes. So hopefully, maybe this will develop a little more. We'll do a, so a social aspect of this, but for the time being, it's going to have to remain like this. But uh, thank you guys for coming. Really appreciate it. Thank you.